Hey, Adam Smolcom here, lead pastor of Vive Church. Welcome to our podcast. I pray that God will speak to you through the message today and that a greater level of faith would be unlocked in your life. God bless. Genesis, specifically chapter 22, and uh, verse six is where we're gonna kind of focus today. It says, so Abraham placed the wood for the burnt offering on Isaac's shoulders, while he himself carried the fire and the knife as the two of them walked on together. Isaac turned to Abraham and said, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. We have the fire and the wood, the boy said, but where is the sheep for the burnt offering? God will provide a sheep for the burnt offering, my son, Abraham answered, and they both walked on Together when they arrived at the place where God had told him to go, Abraham built an altar and arranged the wood on it. Then he tied his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham picked up the knife to kill his son as a sacrifice. At that moment, the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Yes, Abraham replied, here I am. Don't lay a hand on the boy, the angel said. I kind of said that a little calm, but I'm sure you can have poetic license with how frantic the angel was. Do not hurt him in any way for... Now I know that you truly fear God. You have not withheld from me even your son, your only son. Then Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught by its horns in a thicket. So he took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering in place of his son. Now I distinctly remember warning everyone not to come back this week. So since you're here and did not heed my warning, I want to prepare you because today we're going to be talking about fixing financial fractions. Fixing financial fractions. I ain't going to ask if you're ready for the Word of God. You turned up on a great Sunday to be challenged. So why don't you just embrace somebody while the going is good? All right, would you do it real quick? Why don't you embrace somebody around you, then go ahead and take your seats. Spectacular. How many people would be willing to admit that they've at some point in their life experienced financial hardship? Not, oh, five people. I know you're just settling into your seats and you're usually used to a rhetorical question from the beginning, but I want to make this intimate today. We're coming from a different angle. Let me rephrase the question now that you're settled and you're comfortable with the person that you're sitting next to. You had your opportunity to move, now you're locked in. How many people would be willing to admit that at some point in your life, you have experienced what you would consider financial hardship? 90%. of people here are doing something that we don't know how to do. Come and take the microphone. You teach us today on how to fix the financial fractions. I can remember as a youth pastor, 
as a youth pastor, we had just stepped into the ministry. We were so excited because I went from owning a business to saying, I'm God, I'm gonna follow you. I got called into ministry. I got an opportunity to preach one time. I was just like a volunteer. And then I got an opportunity to preach at this conference. I don't even know why they asked me to preach at this conference, but it was a youth-wide conference. And I got up to preach. And I remember this pastor that was in this church, he was in the uh, back of the room, kind of just monitoring what they teaching at this youth conference. And he came down, I thought he came down for the altar call. And I knew who this pastor was. He's like, he's a pastor of a predominant church. Why is he coming down at the response? And we prayed and he just kept looking at me. And I thought, oh, no, I'm in trouble. <laughs> and uh, I'm thinking, the whole time I'm doing the altar call, what did I say? What did I say that was wrong? And then as uh, everyone left, he still stood there. And I kind of made my way over to get my chastisement. He said, I want you to come work for me. And I was like, okay, uh, what does that mean? I didn't know what it meant. Because what he told me is it meant serving the Lord, giving your whole life to him and pursuing his calling. What it also meant is we're going to pay you really bad. <laughs> That's what it meant. Yeah. Literally what it meant. Because we stepped in from business ownership to now youth pastor wages, which I have told you before as a youth pastor back in those days, not here in Five Church, but back in those days, you were a youth pastor, but you were paid as if you were one of the youth. <laughs> Anybody ever been a youth pastor here? Anybody done youth ministry full-time? You would know exactly what I'm talking about. It's like because you're, 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 you're looking after young people, pay you like you are a young person. And we had a full family. We had three kidlets, man. We had like so much going on. And I can remember being so mad at God. Mad at God because we were literally living paycheck to paycheck. We were, we were in this season where it didn't make sense. Like, God, here I am serving you. You owe me. <laughs> Anybody had that conversation with God? Now, here we are serving you. And on Friday nights, the things normal people get to do on Friday nights. And we're here, crazy teenagers. And I can remember being so mad with God. I won't go into all the details of the financial hardship, but I do remember being at a prayer meeting. A prayer meeting one day, and it was right at the height where I'm just trying to figure out, God, how are we gonna do this? Babies just need stuff, and, and, and wives need stuff. <laughs> Why are they so expensive, God? And I can remember so clearly being at this prayer meeting, and the person leading the prayer meeting went to this moment where, where they said, now we're gonna, we're gonna pray for finances. I thought, this is it, thank you, Jesus. Literally, I was disengaged from the prayer meeting. Not that you would ever do that, but I was. I was in the prayer meeting. I wasn't praying for the nations. I wasn't praying for anything. I was praying for me. And as I was in that moment, he said, we're gonna pray for finances. And not only do you say we're gonna pray for finances, he's like, I want you to partner up and pray for each other. It just so happened that right by me was one of the youth parents who was wealthy. I thought, this is the moment. It was fantastic. So I literally just ran to that person. I grabbed him. I said, let's pray. And literally, I went like this. But nothing happened because he started to tell me how much he needs prayer. And I was a little offended at first, because I was like, no, this is my moment. You're the wealthy guy. You pray your blessings and your secrets on me. And, uh, and I was confused that he said, I, I need prayer. We're going through something financially. 
Now, it didn't make sense because I knew him and his wife. They were both doctors. I knew how wealthy they were. I'd been to their mega mansion a couple times. We had seen the cars, my dream cars. He had seven of them. And and I knew exactly the, the net worth of this individual and what was confusing to me as a youth pastor earning $33,000 a year, this, 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 this doctor and his doctor's wife are going through financial troubles. He proceeds to say that our financial difficulty is causing trouble in our marriage. I'm like, you want me to pray for finances and your marriage? What about me? I realized in that moment, he had finances, but they were fractured. You're picking up from week one, where we learned that God puts more in your hands. Something we discovered about biblical stewardship is that God expects us to manage, not maintain. I'm not gonna cover the ground from last week, but I do need to revisit this, that God expects us to manage, not maintain. The distinction between the two can be, I mean, cannot be overstated as one is referred to in Scripture as good and faithful and the other is literally labeled wicked and lazy. And what you'll find apparent from the Gospels to the Epistles is that when we are diligent with what God has given us, God releases more. Let me say it again. When we are diligent with what God has given us, God releases more. This is because... Good management is measured in multiplication. In fact, you don't have to really search too hard in Scripture to see how much God is into multiplication. I mean, Jesus multiplied. Jesus multiplied Peter's catch at Galilee. Jesus multiplied the wine in Cana. He multiplied loaves of fish a couple times. God is into multiplication. However, I do need you to understand that God is by no means obligated or required to multiply what you've got. This is where it gets hard. God is by no means obligated to multiply what you've got. I am convinced that most Christians live our lives, maybe maybe even putting out there some biblical statements you've heard about prosperity or something like that, name it and claim it. And so Christians live, well, I'm just gonna declare it and it's gonna happen. I wanna... Break it to you. No sentence that you can form from the Bible will will make it, God, multiply what you've got. God is not at your beck and call to multiply what you've got. Uh, Actually, I'm gonna walk slowly and I'll let it simmer for a second. God is not obligated to multiply what you've got. I want this to get into the atmosphere. Because sometimes we can boil God down to a genie that if we have enough faith, then faith alone will cause God and move God to bless me financially. It's one of the most corrosive understandings in the body of Christ today that we can just manipulate God because of a faith statement or a faith perspective. The problem with that is those who haven't got finances are marginalized as if they don't have faith. Then as a pastor, how do I practically help you get out of the situation you're in? Because if it's just up to faith, then all I've got is have more faith. But God is not obligated to multiply what you've got. 
I hate to break it to you, but there are some things God will not multiply. For instance, God will not multiply toxic. God will not multiply disorder. I don't care how bold, how accurate and articulate your faith statement is, God won't multiply what He doesn't want more of. So, so, so if, if, if you're just sitting there believing that you can mismanage your finances and then pray a prayer for God to bring more, God will not bring more of the mismanagement. I'm looking for a friendly face. I, 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 know, I know I warned you. I know I prepared my heart. This is going to be savage. But I did think there would be some friendly faces in here that agree with the pastor to know that there is much more that God wants to put in your hands. Because when we rele- relegate it to just a faith statement, we leave it in the hands of God and we excuse us from the process. So we go about living on credit, mismanaging our life and expecting to God just do more of that. God is not obligated. God is not obligated. He is not obligated to multiply your dysfunction. Because while there are clear scriptures in the Word of God that draw on the power of God to multiply, there are just as many scriptures about the way you steward what God gives you. And stewardship precedes multiplication. When you're diligent with what God gives you, then God multiplies. When you are diligent, there is a partnership that God is looking for on this earth. He's looking for stewards. He's looking for stewards. God doesn't want more of that. Just by making more doesn't guarantee God's blessing on your finances, by the way, because you can make a lot and still have fractured finances. See, management is not about how much you make. It's about more margin. Management is not connected to how much you make. It's connected to how much margin you make. I'm assuming the lack of response is busy writing and your brain ticking over. Because we're a talkback church, but I don't expect that much talkback today. I expect you to thumb some notes or pen some notes. Because sometimes we can think that if I just made more, then I would be blessed. But in my experience, people who make more also make more debt. Stewardship is not about making more. It's about making more margin. Because when you have margin, you can be used by God. Uh, I've met a lot of high income earners who are not nearly as generous as people who would you would probably consider as having modest income simply because of margin. In other words, you can have fractured finances at every level. At every level of income, you can have fractured finances. I'm talking to the single mom today as much as I'm talking to the double income, uh, tech, entrepreneur. I'm telling you, you can have fractured finances at every level. That's why this topic is just as relevant in the Silicon Valley as it would be in the Midwest because it doesn't matter what you make, it's about the Margin. It's about the margin, which is essentially the understanding required to fully comprehend the significance of tithing. Tithing is God's mechanism for fixing financial fractions. 
why don't we take a moment to teach it? I feel like we need to. I feel like we need to wind it right back. I think we need to go back to Tithing 101 and give a full scope and a full understanding because I have learned not to assume that everyone has the same understanding as everyone else when it comes to the tithe. Over the last decade, uh, predominantly, uh, I've, had, I've had many different comments and conversations from people who've come from all walks of life backgrounds as people have come to the Silicon Valley for work and for career opportunities and they found their way in the church. It has been a fascinating journey of hearing the gamut of thoughts, articulations and even doctrines around the tithe. From, from people telling me that they believe it's just a Christian tax uh, to, to people telling me they don't believe in the tithe because it's Old Testament. Which is funny because I always love that question the most. I love that statement the most. When they say, oh, I don't believe in the tithe, it's Old Testament. I'm like, oh, wow. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. It's in the Old Testament. Um, and then I like to ask this question, do you murder? And they're like, no. I'm like, why not? And they never said, well, the Bible says not to. I said, oh, but that's in the Old Testament. So I want to do today is I want to give you an essential overview of the tithe. And maybe I could do it with a bit of a historical understanding, mainly because the tithe actually precedes Old Covenant. In fact, the Bible actually has a few covenants to it. Did you know that? And you can't afford to get them confused. For instance, you have the the covenant between God and Abraham where he promises him that he will give him a son and that son, through Abraham, in fact, he will be the father of many nations. This is when Abraham didn't even have a son or an inkling of a son. There's also the covenant between God and Moses or the God and his people, the Israelites, through Moses. And of course, there is the new covenant, one through, for us, through the sacrifice of Jesus. Now keep those covenants in mind as we build a framework for understanding the tithe because the first example and direct mention of the tithe is with Abram in Genesis chapter 14, verse 17. What we're gonna find here is Abraham had mobilized his household army. This is how much of a boss Abram was. He had his own army in his household. He had 300 trained men within his household. And so within his household, he mobilized them because an invading army had taken his nephew Lot and his entire household. And then what we do is we see upon him returning from victory, uh, having been victorious in battle, we have the record of him encountering an encounter between Abram and, and the high priest Melchizedek. It says this in Genesis 14, 17. After Abram returned from his victory over Hedor Lemar, And all his allies, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shiva, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, the king of Salem and a priest of God most high, brought Abram some bread and wine. Melchizedek blessed Abram with this blessing. Blessed be Abram by God most high, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high who has defeated your enemies for you. Then Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of all the goods he had Recovered. This is what the tithe means. It's a Hebrew word for tenth. Just covering all the bases so you know what we're talking about. The tithe used here is Hebrew word for tenth. However, there is more to the tithe than a simple fraction. To understand all of this, we need to keep tracking in Scripture. And fast forwarding a few generations, you'll find Jacob in Genesis chapter 28 at a moment where he wrestled with God. It's here that Jacob 
after an encounter with the angel of the Lord, declared that this is none other than the house of God. And in verse 20, he makes a vow and says, then, uh, then Jacob made this vow, if God will indeed be with me and protect me on this journey, and if he'll provide me with food and clothing, and if I return safely to my father's home, then the Lord will certainly be my God. And this memorial pillar I have set up will become a place for worshiping God, and I will present to God a tenth of everything he gives me. Again, we see the acknowledgement of God's provision and recognition through returning to God a tenth of everything that he receives. Now to the, old, to the argument that the tithe is not valid because it's Old Testament, I wanna kind of correct that argument. If maybe I correct the argument, it may have a semblance or relevance because what they're actually attempting to argue is that the tithe is a law requirement that is no longer valid under the new covenant since the new covenant supersedes the old covenant. This, this covenant I'm talking about comes a few hundred years later when Moses was leading the Israelites out of captivity from Pharaoh in Egypt where they were slaves. And while in the wilderness where God is reestablishing the Israelites as his very own possession, through Moses, God gave them what's known as the law. I know this may be redundant for some people. For those new to church, this is like Netflix right now. <laughs> the law essentially being a long and detailed list of rules and regulations and requirements by which they could follow and if fulfilled, would establish them as being in right standing with God. In other words, for every action, there was a reaction that was spelled out in the Torah. Everything from what happened if you stole someone's wife to what happened if your cow fell in a hole on the Sabbath. Not only was there what not to do, there was what you could do to redeem that situation. You're tracking with me. The law was explicit. It catered for pretty much every scenario they could think of at the time. And not only did the law clearly spell out the, the repercussions of breaking it, but even more importantly, what to do to redeem it. Now, from a new covenant perspective, we, we look at the law as condemning, as regulatory and bad. When in reality, the law provided God's people a standard to live by and a redemptive pathway back to Him. See, from your modern perspective, you look at the law as just bad law. But, but it was a pathway back to God. It was a pathway of redemption. It was a standard to live by and a way to God to redeem everything and how they got off track. Romans 7, 7, I love the way the Apostle Paul puts it. He says, well, then am I suggesting the law of God is sinful? Of course not. In fact, it was the law that showed me my sin. I would never have known that covenant is wrong if the law had not said you must not covet. But sin used this command to arouse all kinds of covetous desires within me. If there were no law, sin would not have that power. At one time, I lived without the understanding of the law. But when I learned the command not to covet, for instance, the power of sin came to life and I died. So I discovered that the law's commands, which were supposed to bring life, brought spiritual death instead. Sin took advantage of those commands and deceived me. It used the commands to kill me, but still, the law itself is holy and its commands are holy and right and good. But how can that be? Did the law, which is good, cause my death? Of course not. Sin used what was good to bring about my condemnation to death. So we can see how terrible sin really is 
It uses God's good commands for its own evil purposes. So the trouble's not with the law for its spiritual good. The trouble's with me for I'm all too human a slave to sin. It's not, it's not the law that is bad, but the condemnation that comes from not being able to fulfill the law. It came from the fact that we couldn't keep it, couldn't achieve it, couldn't do it. This is how the tithe turned up as law, by the way. Because you couldn't keep it, God gave you ability to redeem it. Leviticus 27.30, it says, Every tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's, and it is holy to the Lord. What Moses knew is that you're going to mess up your finances. You're going to mess up your life. So they took what the father Abraham had established, what Jacob had continued. And now Moses said, let's build it into the law as a preceding redeeming element. So it wasn't just an after effect, it was a for effect. At least your finances are going to be covered and redeemed when you honor God with the first tenth of what you bring in. And I love that the Bible even echoes this because those who had, let's say, forgotten. It's a nice way to put it, huh? I forgot to tithe. Got so busy making money of the anointing and gifting God gave me. Just blew my mind. Forgot to honor the Lord. What Moses built in was a redeeming element to your tithe as well. Not only does your tithe redeem your finances, but there is an element to redeem the tithe. It goes on to say in the very next verse, in uh, verse 31, if a man wishes to redeem some of his tithe, he shall add a fifth to it. Like this is fractions here, but it shows that there is an extra measure that I can go to to go, you know what, God, I've got to honor you. There's a pathway back. My finances are fractured. I realize I haven't been a good steward. And I haven't honored you. So God, I'm going to start stewarding by honoring the Lord. And there's two ways to look at this. To look at it as a penalty or a pathway. Too many people look at it as a penalty. You mean because I didn't honor the Lord? No, I have to add a fifth to it. That's one perspective. The other perspective is, my goodness, God, what can I do? Give me a pathway. Let, let me do something that I can show you that that was, I, I want to honor the Lord. I want to redeem where I went wrong, where I got jacked up, where I listened to some internet theology and I got my doctrine so backward that I didn't even know where I was. Is there something I can do to redeem this? Now, let's not stop with the Old Testament. Because while we can find several specific mentions of the tithe in the New Testament, what's even what I would consider a better example of new covenant giving is not, not the requirements that made it through the cross into the new covenant, but, but, but more of the heartfelt response and experience to the grace, to the forgiveness and resurrection power of Jesus. Have you heard of Zacchaeus? Anybody ever went to kids' church and heard of Zacchaeus? Luke 19, it, 
It says that as Jesus was literally walking through the town of Jericho one day, Zacchaeus, who was a tax collector, he, he was short, so he climbed up a tree to see Jesus, but what ends up happening is Jesus sees him. And it's a beautiful story where those who are looking for Jesus realize that Jesus has been looking at them the whole time. And you stand in front of Jesus being seen. That's one of the greatest moments of salvation in your life. The Bible does not record a conversion moment of Zacchaeus, but it does indicate that he was seen. That's salvation when you're fully seen before God and you're fully known by God. And it's interesting because Jesus literally says to Zacchaeus, out of the whole crowd, he was a tax collector. He wasn't a popular guy. He wasn't preferred within the crowd of people. So he had to climb a tree just to get a perspective of Jesus. Jesus calls out to him and says, Zacchaeus, I'm eating at your place today. And I love the response. Luke 19, 8, it says, and Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone, anything, I restore it fourfold. This was the natural response to the grace and the salvation of Jesus. Zacchaeus didn't stand there and say, Hey, Jesus, before we actually enter into this contract of relationship, can we clearly spell out, is there a text to this? He was a tax collector. He understood taxes and how begrudgingly people paid taxes. So if anybody had the fractions down on what things cost, it was the tax collector. But that wasn't his heart posture. After receiving the grace and forgiveness and acknowledgement and being seen by God, he says, if I will give away half my wealth, if I've defrauded anyone, I'm going to redeem it by paying it back. It was a heart posture. It wasn't a penalty. It wasn't a penalty. Can you see the shift between the old covenant and new covenant giving? Many people miss it. They miss it as if under new covenant we're excused from any response to God. No, no, no. It's not that you're excused, it's emphasized. Not as a, what do I have to do? But my God, what do I get to do? What do I get to do of an overflow? This is great teaching. You know, what was an expectation and requirement is now an expression and a response to lordship. No matter what covenant you consider, the tithe has always been a principle connected to the promise of God. Well, what does that mean? Well, if we go back to the old, the old, old covenant, the one between God and Abraham, the first one, we find the basics of that covenant was a promise to give him a son and that through that son, he would become the father of many nations. Now, this story is obviously crazy from the start right? because why on earth would God ask someone to kill their son? Well, essentially, it was never actually about sacrificing Isaac as much as about Abraham's obedience. God didn't need a dead boy as much as he doesn't need your money. He's looking for your obedience. <laughs> God didn't need a dead boy. Let me bring it into your world. God doesn't need your money. God is not bankrupt if you don't give. God's got more. We established that last week. 
The fact that he doesn't give you more isn't because he's broke. We've got no blessings left. God didn't need a dead boy. He needed Abraham's obedience. God didn't need your money. He's looking for your obedience. Why did he pick the son? Because he's sadistic? No, because it was the thing that was most precious to him. It's a savage story, believe it or not. In fact, this story is one of the most significant examples of stewardship in Scripture. I I can't imagine how this story actually played out, to be honest with you. Because it describes Isaac in a pretty real way. We don't even get the full understanding of how old Isaac is at this point. However, we do know he was at the age of understanding that something ain't right. Like literally... Walking up the mountain, it precedes it that God spoke to Abram and he was so obedient that the very next morning he saddled the donkey. Packed it up and he went to the base of the mountains where he left the donkeys with the servants and he said, uh, he said Isaac and I are gonna go up to the mountain, we're gonna worship God and we're gonna come back. And as they're going up, he loads the wood on Isaac's shoulders. So he was old enough to carry the amount of wood that's required for the sacrifice. And it says that, Abram, because he's the dad, he took the fire and the knife. (laughs) Son, you're carrying the wood. Right to the end, teaching him. And as they're going up the mountain, Isaac has a bit of a revelation. Now, at first, I'm convinced he thought, Dad, Dad's getting old. But obviously, you know, being in a a good kid says, hey, father. (laughs) Yes, son. He says, "Uh, hey, I I don't want to rain on the parade here, but uh, I just noticed that uh, there's some elements missing. What do you mean? Well, well, dad, I can see you've got the knife. Uh, I can see you've got the fire. My Lord, I got the wood. <laughs> but, Father, where's, I hate to break, where's the ram? And I love what happens is that maybe they paused in their step for a second. Maybe Abraham's thinking, how do I explain this? <laughs> he says, God will provide. And I'm sure Abraham just kept walking. Just keep moving. Now, if I'm Isaac in that moment, I lower the wood and I run. If I'm old enough to carry wood, I'm old enough to figure out what's going to happen if there ain't no ram. But it's fascinating to see that in Scripture, it actually says in verse 8, God will provide. And then it says, and they both walked on together. They both walked on together. I want to make sure you understand that principles require participation. You see, principles are a lot like promises as they are both established by God. There's a difference though. You will get a promise from God and God's promise is unfailing. God's promise is completed by His own divine nature. Principles, however, require our participation for them to come to pass. 
whether it's a principle of sowing and reaping, there is a participation on your part. A promise God will do on his own. Even the fact that Isaac is able to have this conversation is a result of God's unfailing promise. He didn't even need a working womb. God just did it. So God will fulfill his promises, but his promises are often connected to a principle, a principle that requires our participation. Am I explaining this well enough for you to comprehend and follow along? For a principle to work, it requires us to be actively involved in the process. Both promises and principles require belief. It's just that one simply requires revelation while the other requires application. It requires application. There was a moment for Isaac. I don't think Isaac gets enough credit in this story. Abraham gets all the credit. I mean, sure, he was standing there, even to the moment like where he tied him up. That's a good point. That's a good point. <laughs> Shoot, that's serious. I just think about the daddy issues that Isaac has after this, to be honest with you. Like, I love you, Dad, that you didn't go through with it, but dang, Dad, that was close. Do you know what I mean? Like, every time Dad gets a knife out for Thanksgiving, you're like, yo. <laughs> Whew, Dad, don't move so fast. That had to be deep-seated daddy issues. Because the Bible makes it clear as he ties him. They walked on together. Isaac made the revelation. It's going to require something. It's going to cost something. Ain't no ramp. It's me. All right, let's keep going and uh, let's keep believing. Even to the point where he's getting tied up. He's getting laid on the altar. The Bible describes that Abraham has the knife in the air. He's committed. So much so that the Bible gives the reaction of heaven. Abraham, like literally, God says, Angel, get your boy, get your boy, get, get your boy. Look, he's about to do this. Literally, it's like it's, the way it's worded is like a reaction. Like, holy smokes, he, he literally, he's serious. This guy's obedient. Don't you know this was a promise? Don't you know his wife's old? Don't you know he's not probably going to get another one of these? He says, catch your boy, he's about to do it. He's literally about to stab him. And the angel says, stop. And then right when he says stop, they hear a ram in the thick. They, they find the provision, not before the obedience, but after the obedience. After the incredible act of obedience, The provision. Now, there are many scholars that articulate how that ram came into the thicket. As you can imagine, the way scholars, scholar. Some say that at that moment, a miraculous ram materialized in the thicket. But most say it was there all along. But because Abraham was so fixated on fulfilling what God had told him to, his. His determination to fulfill what God, he didn't see the ram. Until God literally sent the angel said, bro, I've prov- it's right there. <laughs> I, I want to 
I want to suggest that when you're obedient to God's word, it's not that just God will provide. He'll make you realize there's been provision all along. It'll put a different perspective on what you already had. It'll help you see things differently. I'm not just trying to prescribe this weird blessing from heaven as you give, and then it's like God's like a vending machine that if we put in, we're obedient, king, God pays out. No, no, no. Even what's better than sometimes provision is perspective on the provision that he's already given you. Abraham was obedient. He was obedient. This is because a principle is a fundamental truth that produces a divine system of cooperation between heaven and humanity. I'm going to say that again for you. It's so stinking good. This is because a principle is a fundamental truth that produces a divine system of cooperation between heaven and humanity. It's what the principle does. It facilitates a system, a facilitation, that God has established principles in His Word, that when we apply those principles, it's a partnership, it's my part to play in the stewardship of what God has entrusted to me. So the principle is able to work, but it requires my participation. In other words, God is looking for stewards. (laughs) That's what this whole series is about. God is looking for stewards. I need my worship team to come back before I lose the crowd. Abraham, Abraham, I've got ADD, by the way, if you haven't noticed. It's a, it's a mild case, but it would. <laughs> it's under control. Most of the time. Abraham proved that he was a good steward through obedience. But mostly by bringing back to God what was most costly. By realizing that this was the promise that he had believed for his entire life. And maybe there's some people that you've got to a stage in life where you realize that I've been through hardship and now I've accrued some stuff. I did this. I did this. Self-made. It's a bad place to be when pride sits in around what you've done to get you to where you are. I'm not gonna speak a curse over you, but I am gonna warn you that's a dangerous, dangerous place to be when you have failed to acknowledge the goodness and the provision of the Lord and His blessing in your life. And what the tithe represents, it's not a penalty because you decided to give your life to Christ and follow Him. It's not a tax that goes into paving the gold streets of heaven. It's a pathway. A pathway to redeem and acknowledge the provision of God. To literally keep us humble before God. Recognizing all our days. That God, you don't need me to bring my son to the sacrifice. I'm going to honor you right from the beginning. I'm going to acknowledge everything I have is from you. I'm on house money. I know this ain't mine. Everything I have, I know it belongs to you, God. I'm so grateful that you 
allow me to facilitate and steward what it is that you gave to me. Whether it's finances, whether it's calling, whether it's anointing, whether it's gifting, I, I am a steward of what God has given me. And the tithe becomes a powerful way of acknowledging that, honoring the Lord. Hey, I hope you were blessed by that message. We release new content every single week here at Vive Church. And so if you don't wanna miss any of it, I would encourage you, go ahead and subscribe. Also visit our website, vivechurch.org to stay up to date with everything that's happening in the life of Vive Church. God bless you.